Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Unlocking your sleep potential. Brought to you by CleanMyBed.com. So welcome to our fifth episode in this uh, series on uh, sleep and sleep health and the science of sleep. And as usual, as we introduced first on our first podcast, I'm here with uh, Dr. Jill Warner, who has a BSc in immunology and uh, physiology and a PhD in allergy from the University of London, has worked for the National Heart and Lung Institute at the Brampton Hospital in London, the University of Southampton and the Imperial College in London, and is currently a prof honorary professor in pediatrics at the University of Cape Town and has published over 100 peer reviews. And along with us today, we've got a guest, and I, I, can I say it's the husband as well? I think we can say that. But uh, you can imagine this household is very healthy when it comes to allergies. But uh, Professor John Warner, um, Emeritus Professor of Pediatrics at the Imperial College in London, and also the Honorary Professor at the University of Cape Town. Welcome to both of you. Now, this is obviously one of the key subjects when it comes to sleep allergies and how they affect our day-to-day -day living. So let's just kick off with a, a, a kind of a, a broad look at how allergies affect sleep. I mean, wh why do they affect sleep? Why can't you just sleep through an allergy? Mm. Well, the, when you think about it, Mike, you are sleeping in an environment that is absolutely full of the particles that actually cause the allergy. So getting into a bed is one of the most dangerous things you can do if you're an allergy sufferer. Do you know that um, as far as house dust mites are concerned, which are the, the major trigger of allergies and asthma in, in children, um, you can have up to two million of them living in your mattress at any one time. Yeah. And house dust mites are, are delightful creatures. I was gonna say, um, what are they? Yeah, they, they are actually related to spiders. Um, and they like to live in an environment very much the same as we do. Um, if they could choose, they would live at around 25 degrees C, um, around 80% humidity, um, because they're little creatures that don't drink, they absorb water through their skin. And they are absolutely delightful. Their favorite food is human skin scales. Right. And you know, we shed about a couple of grams of skin scales into our bed every single night. So these little mites are sitting there in our mattress, eating our skin scales, absorbing any sweat that's coming from our bodies into our mattresses and absolutely loving the heat that the bodies create whilst they're in the bed. Sure. And then of course, house dust mites have to um, have an excretion as well. So their fecal particles, their poo, is exactly what we are breathing in when we jump around in our beds. They come up into the air and we breathe them in. And it is those that people are actually allergic to. So it's actually not the dust mite, it's the, it's the poop of the dust mite it's, itself. It's, it's the um, components of the poo right. that people are breathing in that get into their airways and actually cause the allergic reactions. So what, what is in that excrement of those things that causes that sort of allergic reaction? In other words, is everybody allergic to 
desmites, or are some of us not? No, um, it's a particular protein um, that is that is excreted by the house dust mite, um, and people can be allergic to different proteins in the faecal particles. There are various of them, but there is one um, very important one that the majority of people um, will be allergic to. If people are interested in in the actual name of the house dust mite, the one that um, I've worked with the most is called a Dermatophagoides terranissimus. Oh, Sounds like a dinosaur, that. doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> it's a tiny dinosaur, yeah. um, but um, its allergen is called DERP1, and this is the protein in the, um, the the poo from the house dust mites that gets into the airways and, and causes the allergic reactions. It's actually a, a digestive enzyme from the bowel of the of the house mites, <laughs> um, and because it's an enzyme, it, it can be quite irritating when it lands on the airways. Mm. And that is the process that induces the allergy in the first place. So, I mean, are all dust mites created equal? In other words, are they different in South Africa versus the UK versus the US? Are there different brands or versions of them? There are different brands, <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. And you do find different ones in different areas. So mm. um, very much depending on where you come from in the world, you may react to one type more than another. And they, because they like a particular environment, you will find them more in one environment than another, mm. yes. And, and going back to my first question, is it are we all allergic to the, the dust mite or are some people immune to it? No, you're only going to be allergic to the dust mite if you have an allergic tendency. Right. So um, for people who have no allergic conditions, the house dust mite poo really doesn't do them any harm whatsoever. Mm. It could be something else in their beds that they, they're reacting to, like if you let your cat sit on the bed, for example, um, the cat allergen gets in, in there as well. But no, not everybody is allergic to house dust mites. It will depend on whether you are an allergic person. Mm. So you've just touched on my next question. Is, we talked about dust mites. What other allergens are that people are allergic to when it, when it comes to sleeping? Mm. Yes, I mean, the indoor environment, there are lots of potential sources of, of allergy triggers. Um, so animals, obviously, cats and dogs. Um, certainly when, when you, you speak to your patients um, and we ask about um, the animals in their house, particularly if we've already told them that they are allergic to one of the animals, and you say to them, well, do you let your cat or dog sit on on the bed and they go oh, no 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 the cats oh, they're, they're always kept into one room or another they're never allowed in in into the bedroom and then the, the small child sitting beside them will go but mommy the cat was on the bed this morning and <laughs> very hard to keep them off actually yeah, it's a perception <laughs> it is, isn't it yeah. it is it is so um cat allergen is actually one of the uh most important allergens like the house dust mite because cat allergen is on very very tiny particles um, and it comes from both sides of the cat. It comes from the sebaceous glands in the skin and um, from the saliva when they're licking themselves, which then dries on the fur. And you can imagine when you stroke a cat, then mm. this cloud of particles goes up into the air. Um, and if your cat's been sitting on your bed, it also goes down into the mattresses and the pillows. Um, but the allergen is so tiny that um, it, it stays in the air. So you can go into a house that has had a cat five years after that cat has gone and still measure cat allergen in that house. Wow. I mean, stuck to the walls, in the carpet, um, unless they've been majorly cleaned, it will still be there. Well, that's, I mean, I'm, I'm allergic to cats. We've kind of had to live with it because we have a cat in the family. So 
when, when you're talking about cat antigens, it's not actually the, the hair of the cat, it's the sebaceous. In other words, it's the sweat or the fluid of the cat that's it actually is, causing it, the problem. It's another protein. Okay. I mean, these, yeah. they're largely allergens are proteins, mm. um, and these proteins are the size that our immune response recognizes. Mm. And in people who are not allergic, it will recognize it but go, oh, that's not a problem. But in somebody who is allergic, the, mm. the immune system will look at it and go, oh, this is dangerous. I need to do something about it. And then produces the antibodies and the cells that cause the allergic reactions that we see. Yeah. Are cats, you mentioned that cats have got a particular problem. In other words, are cats the worst potential pet allergens that you get in the household? I mean, dogs less allergic likely Do dogs cause less allergy than cats do okay. yes yes they do and that's again because of the size of the particle on which the allergens are carried so if if the particles drop out quickly and they're not floating around in the air they're less of a problem but obviously again if we're thinking about your bed and sleep then all of these will go into the mattress and every time you turn over they will come up as a cloud oh. and you'll be breathing them sure I mean, when when you talk about um, dogs, I mean, you get different kinds of dogs. You get dogs that have got fur and dogs that have got hair. In other words, non-allergic dogs. I mean, is it is it true that you get non-allergic dogs, dogs that have got hair? Are they still likely to call allergic, allergic reactions from some people? There are differences. Mm. Um, it's quite hard to say this type of dog will definitely not cause a problem. Yeah. But dogs that don't shed um, and uh, dogs with curly short fur from the studies that i've done in the past um and there's, there was a really interesting one actually in a little bit way sad but but still very lovely where um there was a man who was blind who needed a guide dog um and of course guide dogs are largely labradors mm. or alsatians but they produce quite a lot of allergen so he ended up with a standard poodle <laughs> as a guide dog, <laughs> as a guide dog. <laughs> and poodles are less allergic yeah okay. they, they are less allergenic yes they are yes okay yes. What, so what other allergens you talked about pets what other allergens i mean I, the first thing i think about we, we're, we're doing this podcast here in cape town when the fame oh. boss is going in spring <clears throat> suddenly everybody's taking hay fever tablets i mean is airborne mm. allergens a big a big issue yes very much so i mean you're talking about seasonal allergens yeah. now so obviously at certain times of year there are large amounts of those particular allergens outside although if you leave your windows open obviously they're going to come inside as well mm. there are other indoor allergens too um there are uh, molds and fungus um and you do find quite a lot of those particularly in damp homes um i don't know whether if you look at your shower you sometimes see a bit of black around yes, the edges yes. <laughs> that's a particular um type of mold called mm. cladosporium which um can cause quite a lot of allergic conditions so that well. can become airborne yes that green stuff on the wall can be airborne yes all right, okay. If it dries, then it, it goes up into the air. And that can also cause um, problems, particularly, as I say, in damp environments. So when you look at all the patients that you and John have seen over the years, is there a proportion of people who are dust mites, a proportion of people that are pets, a proportion of people that are airborne? And what is the, where are those proportions and who gets more of what? Well, um, amongst children, house dust mite allergy comes out as the commonest in those that have nasal symptoms or asthma or even eczema because it can affect the skin and cause inflammation in the skin and that's something like 80% of the allergic children we see are house dust mite allergic wow. 
about 50% are cat allergic, 40% dog. Pollen allergy, tree and grass pollen allergies, um, somewhere approaching 50%. Mold allergies, rather less common, you know, 15 to 20%. And then we see a lot of food allergy as well now, uh, which has become an increasing concern because, of course, food gets into the dust too. Mm. And including in the bed, you know, people eat in bed. And if you're peanut allergic and anybody's eaten peanuts in, whilst in the bedroom, mm. then the peanut dust gets into the bed and that can become a problem. Yeah, so we're basically surrounded yeah. <laughs> to some extent. I mean, it, it, I, my, my one question is, how do you measure that? In other words, how do you know that somebody has a certain allergy? I mean, for instance, I can't imagine how you test somebody who's got a mold allergy versus somebody that's got a cat. What What's the process of finding out what they're allergic to? Okay, so it, it is really, really important when people consider that they, they may be allergic to something that they actually go and have proper allergy tests done. And, and when I say proper allergy tests, I mean in an allergy clinic. Um, I'm afraid there are a lot of tests out there that are completely bogus, like sending off your hair to a, a laboratory or holding an electric um, uh, handle and seeing how strong you are. I mean, these these tests are absolutely non-validated, no use whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So the, the two ways that um, people can be tested to see whether they have allergic antibodies to the the um, exposures that they have in their home. Uh, one is a, a skin prick testing, which is where there are solutions made of the things that you might be allergic to. Um, and you put little dots of those solutions on somebody's arm or on their back, and you just very, very lightly prick that into the skin. And if someone is allergic to that, it will come up as a, as a, a red bump. And that will show the, 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 that bump um, considering how, how big it becomes mm. and how important it is, then it will tell you whether or not you're actually allergic to that particular allergen. I would have to say it's terribly, terribly important that you link that test to a history, a clinical history. So you can get false positives, so you can get a red bump, but if you ask the person, do they have any problem with that allergen, they'll say none, none whatsoever. Mm. So you, you take the history and then you do the tests. So that's why it needs to be done in a hospital or a clinic environment. The other way is a blood test. So you can actually do that. And there are uh, specific tests that again can look for individual allergens from individual sources that will tell you whether or not you're reacting to that. What, what's, well, John, you want to say you know, something? I, mean, I think the key is for people to understand, never just do tests. Mm. The tests always have to be interpreted in the light of the person's environment, their exposures and what problems they have. And so they must be interpreted by someone who's an expert in understanding the meaning of tests. No tests are 100%. There are false positives and false negatives. And the clinician who's dealing with the person must understand that and be able to interpret the results appropriately in order to declare whether somebody really has a problem or not. Mm -hmm. And it's not a very simple thing to do, uh, requires some expertise and people should be urged not to send away tests on their own. 
they should go and see an allergist if they think they have an allergic problem. I was going to say, who do you see? So an allergist is probably the best person to see because they specialise in this area. Yes. You don't think your GP wouldn't be the right person in this situation? Well, some GPs are have special additional training. Mm. And indeed, Jill ran a, a very important postgraduate course training doctors from all sorts of disciplines in allergy um, and so there are now some very well-trained GPs but mm. you have to know that they've received they that extra training yeah I mean I can imagine it's quite complex trying to figure out what allergens there are because for instance if you live in the UK there are different airborne allergens versus here in Cape Town if there's a mold, there's obviously different types of mold. And we've even talked about the fact that the dust mites have different versions of themselves around the world. So you've got to test for the local environment to some extent, don't you? Incredibly important. Yeah. There's no point in running a batch of tests to things that aren't actually in the environment in which you're living. So yes, it, it is incredibly important to work out what is the person likely to be exposed to before mm. actually running those tests. Yes. In, in fact, there's a, a lovely allergist in Cape Town He's now retired, Professor Paul Potter, who wrote articles saying, look in your own backyard to understand what people are going to be allergic to. Yeah, yeah. I suppose in Cape Town, when we, when we see the spring season happening, we know, I'd imagine all the GPs locally will know there's going to be a lot of people coming in with hay fever mm. purely because of that. Um, so why not just take an antihistamine? Why not just say, well... Does all these allergies exist and I'm getting a bit of a snotty nose or I'm struggling to sleep because of these allergies? Why not just take a, an allergics and that's all good? Which you can do, of course you can, but it's going to be far, far more effective to avoid the triggers in the first place rather than having to continuously take medications. Um, and of course people forget to take their medications For and sure. then you end up with that snotty nose again or that breathlessness. Much, much more important once you have been diagnosed with a particular allergy to find out whether or not you can avoid that allergen or remove that allergen from the environment that you're working in now. Yeah. So, I mean, is there any long-term problems taking an antihistamine for an extended period of time? Other than <clears throat> Provided you're taking one of the, what are known as second and third generation antihistamines <coughs> that have very much less effect in causing drowsiness. But all the, the, the antihistamines that people most commonly go for and that are available over the counter sometimes do have a sedative effect and that can affect their performance by day. Um, but there are antihistamines like cetirizine, for instance, and loratadine, which are non-sedating in doses which can control a lot of the symptoms of hay fever. They reduce runny nose and sneezing and itchy nose and itchy eyes and itchy skin. Um, they don't get rid of the nasal blockage and for that you need nasal sprays. Mm. And suddenly using steroid sprays and that sort of thing which obviously aren't great. Well, uh, and the steroid sprays for the nose and indeed for the lungs with asthma only work where they land within the airway and any that is absorbed into the circulation is taken out very rapidly by the liver and therefore has very minimal effects on the rest of the body. So they're intrinsically very safe and can be used continuously. But 
uh, under supervision and if you can avoid the allergen then maybe you won't need it and mm. that's obviously the best solution mm. i'm interested if somebody comes to see you and they are think they're suffering from allergy related issues what's the sort of in other words if somebody's listening to this podcast going i don't know whether i'm just got a cold all the time or I'm suffering from allergies what are the what are the sort of markers that you can put down to say ah oh, this is definitely an allergic reaction to something well, it, it's, you've got to look for reproducibility. Does it always happen if you're in the same environment? Do you always have that same reaction? Because if it's only once, it may not be. Um, that It may be an, another component entirely. Uh, as we said, I think it's very important that if you're actually suffering and, and struggling on a day-to-day -day basis from what you think is an allergy, that you actually go and see somebody about it and find out what it is. Having done that, then of course you need the right advice as to how to avoid those allergens. But in knowing which one it is, is most important. There's no point in doing something if you're not actually allergic to that. I've been asked so many times um, by patients who have been diagnosed now with house dust mite allergy or, or pet allergens, well, what, what shall I do? What can I do um, in, in terms of changing my environment? Mm. Um, and quite often they'll say to me, if I just do one thing, what what shall I do? And the answer is going to have to be look at your bed. Because as we started this podcast, the bed is absolutely chock-a-block full of allergens. So looking at some of the techniques that you can use to reduce your exposure to what's in your bed, I would say if, if, if that's all you can do, mm. try Start that. There, yeah. Try that. And there are various ways. Um, there are covers for, for beds um, that actually encase the mattress so that um, the allergen doesn't come out. The only slight problem with that was, and there was a study I did many years ago now, where we put covers onto the mattresses and the pillows. Um, and for the first three months, we saw an improvement in the patients and then they started to get worse again. Um, the problem is that if you put a cover on top of the mattress and then just leave it there, the skin scales build up on top of the mattress and then the house dust might start again where they are. So you, you just get this increasing level. So whatever you do, it has to be something you do regularly. If you cover the mattress, you must clean the cover. Um, if you vacuum the mattress, you must do it more than once in three years um, because the house dust mites life cycle is two to three months. Um, wow. So, you know, you can, if you remove as many as you can, three months later, if you do nothing because you're still putting the, the, the food for the house dust mite back into the bed, the numbers will start to increase again. So it's being regular about your, your treatment. So if you're using a vacuum cleaner, if you're using a sanitizing device, it is something that must be done on a regular basis to keep the allergen levels low. If you can do more, then there are other components in the house that you should look at as well. Um, well we talked about, obviously, if you've got animals that are causing it, you've got to do something about that. But mm -hmm. is there a way of kind of in, encasing the bedroom in a sort of allergic-free zone? That's, <laughs> I mean, you talked about the bed being a very effective way of doing that, but mm -hmm. is there ways of looking at... I'd imagine carpets would be a problem, for instance, and yeah. there is not having carpets in the bedroom. No, absolutely, and mm. and that is another area. Quite a, a you know, people who are very sensitive um, will do better if you remove the carpets and have hard floors, which are easier to clean. Mm. For children, don't have a bed full of soft toys because the house dust mites <laughs> live in the soft toys as well. For sure, um, you can treat the soft toys 
but putting them in the washing machine at 60 degrees C and then freezing them means the soft toy doesn't last too long. And if it's a very favourite one, it could be a bit of a problem. Yeah. Better, better to have something that um, is not so equally friendly to house dust mites and 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 cat and dog allergies. But soft toys are a reality. So that they that are. that you just mentioned that treatment. Mm. I mean, is that a way of mm. killing a, a dust mite put, within put a soft toy? Put them in the washing toy? machine. Has to be yeah. um, at least sixty degrees C as a wash. Okay. Um, and then once you've dried them, um, if you freeze them and then you vacuum them, then everything should have gone from them. And but obviously you've got to do that fairly regularly as well with yeah. the favourite one. Yeah. So, it is every three so months. So pokey's going to get washed a lot. I think you might need a, a range of them that can keep replacing as you as you go but through. They always have a favourite one, I they know. They always have a favourite one, <laughs> they, they do. Um, it's quite important when mentioning the bed um, to talk about not just the mattress, um, mm. pillows and duvets, um, also full of house dust mites and house dust mite allergen, cat and dog allergens as well. So um, if you've the duvet you can quite often put in a washing machine or, or, or take it somewhere to be cleaned. Pillows also, or again, make sure that the treatment you're giving the mattress, you do to the pillow as well. So, and does the same apply in terms of washing the laundry there in terms of the temperature that you yeah. need to wash? So you should actually be washing your sheets at 60 degrees, and but you won't put them in the freezer. Practically, no. you're not going to do that. No, because the, the freezer is, is actually killing anything that still remains. You're right. not most likely going to have live house dust mites sitting on a sheet. Right. They will get washed off in the washing machine. But something that is more dense, um, you need to be able to kill anything that's mm. that's still inside it. Yeah. So what's the protocol for somebody that comes in to see you and says, right, you've identified it's a dust mite, for instance. What what do you what's their homework now? What do you give them to? John, maybe you can oh, well, give us I, a bit of I homework. Think, yeah. I mean one has to take account for the living circumstances of the people because some people it's going to be impossible for them to to achieve a great deal I mean in in terms of their um, financial status what's the quality of the living conditions and you know if you start saying well what you should be doing is having high efficiency vacuum cleaners with special filters and bed covers and changing the humidity um, that's that has a cost attached to mm. it, unfortunately, um, and so I, sometimes we have to just resort to medications rather than making too much of a uh, of a thing about changing the environment because that's going to cause guilt and upset and worry, yeah. uh, and so we have to balance things when we yeah. we we're making our recommendations. But there are some very good things. I mean, if you can have um, a very high efficiency ventilation system with heat exchanging in your house, that can make a difference. Jill did a trial of that in the past. Explain that. What was that? What do you mean it, by that? It, um, basically, it's a system. It's it's sort of a very big air conditioning system that goes in the roof of the house and it takes in the, the warm, humid air and replaces it with cooler, uh, drier air. And house dust mites, as I've said, they absorb um, water through their skin. If you create a dry environment, which is, shall we say, less than 40% humidity, 
they shrivel up and die. So yeah. this works really, really well. If you if if you look at humidity um, in homes, most of them are sitting around at least sixty percent, at least. Um, but if you can get it down to forty-five or forty, the number of house dust mites disappear fairly rapidly wow, um, because okay. they they just can't survive in those environments. So in other words, do drier regions then have less likelihood of okay. Yes, but then again, they have then airborne they issues have different ones. Yeah. Yeah. Different. Yeah. yeah, and also as as John's saying, you've got to talk to your patients about what they're prepared to do. I mean, you can give them a whole list of you must do this, this, and this. You must vacuum every day. You must mm. change the bed covers. You must wash them at sixty degrees. You must do. People have busy lives. I'm very, very aware of that. Um, there was a wonderful study I did with high efficiency vacuum cleaners where I'm afraid rather surreptitiously we put timers in the vacuum cleaners but we told them they must vacuum the bedroom every day and they must do the living room every other day um, and they did this over a period of a year and we measured the dust and what allergens were in that dust over that time period and when we took the timers out of the vacuum cleaners at the end of the year um, one of the ladies had managed to vacuum for 80 hours during that time period and somebody had only managed two. Okay. <laughs> and you can imagine the difference in difference what actually in the happened reactions, in, yes. the, in yeah. the houses. So yeah. you have to take into account human nature. Yeah. <laughs> ask, ask the patients, ask the person, mm. are you prepared to do this? Because if you're not, or if you haven't got time, it's not going to work. However good the machine is or however uh, uh, useful the, the cleaning system is, if it isn't done regularly, it mm. won't work. And the scary thing is I've had um, somebody come in and clean the bed and, and hoover it and use those high power machines and clean the bed perfectly. And what's scary is what you see coming off your bed, the initial mm. thing happens and you think, did that come out of my bed? Mm. And you think your bed's clean. And then three months later, you think, well, it's only in three months later, but there's still a lot of stuff that comes out of that bed with those high pressure vacuums. Mm. So yes. you're right. It, it, it's, it's not something you can do once off. Otherwise, you just build the problem back up again. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and it, it, that's a shame because if you start to see an improvement in clinical symptoms, you want to encourage that and, yeah. and, and keep going. Yeah. yeah. So final question, obviously we're talking about sleep here. Have you seen, in other words, what do you see when you look at somebody with allergies in terms of their sleep behavior? And then how does that improve when they get the allergies under control? Is there ways of measuring that? Yes, there are. And um, we've been involved with a lot of studies using what's called polysomnography. And I want some of the other podcasts are going to discuss that, where you can look at the quality of the sleep. Um, and sleep has to go through cycles. You initially go into deep sleep, but then later on in the night and approaching the morning, you go into cycles of dream sleep, known as rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep. And people who have allergic diseases that are disturbing them at night, whether it's just a blocked nose or actually they have asthma attacks, it totally wrecks the cycles. And so they wake up tired. Their brains haven't had the kind of reconditioning that they need. And it also adversely affects the cycling of their metabolic responses, their endocrine responses, which in turn can make their allergic disease worse. Mm. And if one can get that under control at night, then... All of that can be ironed out and you improve them not only during the night, but during the day as well. Gentlemen, you got anything to add to that? Because that, that's obviously quite, I mean, that's, that's a 
a lot of stuff happening there. You kind of think, well, okay, you're going to get maybe not as good and nasty, but it seems to be like it affects your body quite massively. Absolutely. Quite massively. as your life. Um, and the, the podcast, which if people have been listening to the series, um, if, if they want to listen again to go back to, to Dr. Ali Hare, she explains um, those different cycles of sleep and just how important mm. they really are to quality of life and, mm. and health as far as that's concerned. So all those different cycles which are affected by your allergic reactions are incredibly important to get under control. Mm. And therefore sleeping in a healthy environment that allows your sleep to be normal is very, very important. And we should do everything we can to try and maintain that. Yeah. Well, there we go. All about allergies and sleep. Very important part of maintaining a good sleep health is making sure you get those allergies under control. Big thanks to John and Jill for joining us. And we'll be on to our next podcast. Uh, listen up for our next one. And podcast number six, we'll be talking a little bit about healthy sleep and your well-being around that. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.